Welcome to the Directing Animation Livecast with Scott Weiser. Now that I'm done directing the development and first episode of the second series of Space Station Animation, I'm joining up with Steamroller Animation to push the boundaries of the art form. Thanks to the support of so many of you, I'm continually developing more than 10 dynamic feature film pitches while mastering the art of telling deeply meaningful stories. Today we have Eric Elrod with us. If you don't know his work, you actually probably do know his work. He has been the director on Jurassic Park, Camp Cretaceous, Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man series. He's worked on Rio, the Peanuts movie. Uh, The list goes on and on and on. But where I encountered Eric was at the Salt Lake Animation Expo. He gave a speech about story structure. And I rarely find somebody else who compares and contrasts the story structure as much as I do. So it's awesome to hear his presentation, and I can't wait to dive in even deeper right now. Do you have anything to add to that, Eric? Or? No, I'm, that's really flattering. I'm a huge, huge nerd for story. Like, I love... <laughs> my favorite thing is just, like, taking it apart and putting it back together and seeing how everything works. And I just, like, I just fill my head with red and film story trivia. Because, you know, there's it's such... It's such a broad tapestry when it comes to storytelling. It's like, I find that there's, there really is no, like, there are ways that can generally be successful. And a lot of times that's simply because the audience has been trained to expect a certain structure just because they've been watching movies and TV and reading stories for so long. Yeah. It feels familiar and familiar is good. Familiar makes happy, but you can make a perfect movie and it can fail and you can make a horrible movie and it could become a, you know, multi-billion dollar franchise. So it's like, what are you going to do? It is true, yeah. Speaking of story, I'm going to put in a little shameless plug here. (laughs) Masked Magic, which I announced on the last show, it raised over 16,000 on Kickstarter and through private donations. And it's still available on Backerkit for pre-order through the month of September. So if you want to get that, you go to scottweiser.com slash mass. You can hit pre-order and then select that and the other books that are on there. They're fantastic stories. Obviously, the newest is the best. So (laughs) yeah. And thank you, everybody, for supporting that. That was a hugely successful campaign. I really loved it. So awesome. Okay. So I actually took a screenshot of your graphic. Your last Uh graphic, because you, what you did in your presentation is you presented several different story structures, right? Mm -hmm. Like Save the Cat, and I think you did Robert McKee's story structure, and you did various story structures, and you used Matrix to show, like, if I take these points and I put them in in a story, the story actually ends up radically different. Mm -hmm. And then you put up what you felt like was the best story structure. I'm going to put it up on screen here. You won't see it, but... Which one was it? (laughs) It was, it says act one, the setup, act two, transition, act three, resolution. And then you have act two split in half, which is wise. Mm. That's, that's what we do, right? You have before the journey, walking the path is act two and journey's end return is act three. From my point of view, it's, I, I have a, I have a, a strange point of view when it comes to storytelling in film and television. Simply because my background training is in, because uh, I, I started in theater when I was 11 years old. So I spent 15 years studying theater. Uh, I went to college, my degrees in acting and directing in conservatory theater. When I look at a story, when I look at the structure, I'm, I am explicitly following the character. That seems like a does statement because we typically say like the character is the most important, but uh-huh. you know, predominantly what we find is in story structure in film is like, the character is following the plot yeah. versus the character driving the story. And so I'm typically looking, okay, this is the journey of this individual. And by that nature, this is the, the audience's journey because a huge component of art, a huge component of art that we sometimes seem to forget is the audience. Like we are making this <laughs> for them. We're making yeah. this from them. 
to learn something, to feel something, to see something, to gain something, to lose something, some kind of catharsis, you know, some kind of enlightenment. And so the structure of the story isn't just about building a plot. Yeah. It's about building a person, right? Yeah. You take them as they are at the beginning, you put them through an experience that transforms them into something else by the end. That is the course of the story and that is the nature of the narrative. And so often when we are looking at story structure, we're looking at the forms, right? These are the individual beats and this is what they look like versus their function. These are the individual beats and this is what they do. I love that. One of my... uh favorite story structure people had him on the show his name is brian mcdonald goes and consults mm-hmm. in different companies he talked about how he has an audience simulator in his mind <laughs> that he just yeah story through the audience simulator and so yeah he only he outlines and outlines and outlines and then he writes one draft <laughs> mm. which is amazing i don't know how he does that but just lot lots of dress rehearsals with those outlines you know and that's yeah. that's i mean he's got it just working through the birds i get it that's fantastic yeah. and you i know? think he got that from alfred hitchcock that's one of his big inspirations they would say he would play the audience like a fiddle i always thought well does that mean he's manipulating them and it's like no 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 he understands what's going on in the audience's head and he yeah. like, holy cow they've got to fly but <laughs> i mean but to a certain degree even like you are manipulating the audience because you want to get them from point A to point C, D, E, F, G, you know, in the course of the story. You want them to have this emotional journey. So to a certain degree, you have to understand how they're going to react to things in order to get them there. You know, I was listening to um, Tom Hanks was talking about on a, t- I can't remember what podcast he was on, but he was talking about like, test screenings for the original King Kong back in the you know, 1930 uh-huh. version of King Kong. <laughs> and he was talking about how in the test, there was a sequence in the middle of the movie where, you know, the team is trying to, trying to save Fay Ray from King Kong on the island. And there's one sequence where they're chasing after King Kong and they fall down into a spider, a spider's web and a giant spider comes out and kills half the crew. And they had to cut the scene, even though it was compelling. They cut the scene because as soon as people see giant spider attacking people, they could care less about a hundred foot gorilla, yeah. right? That spider took away all of the danger of King Kong. And it's like, well, that, but you have to be aware that this is this is how the audience is going to react. They're always going to be more afraid of a spider than a gorilla, for one thing, because primates are more familiar. But the emotional tracking of the audience, if you want them to be afraid of this one thing and you do something that's worse, you have to take that thing out because you've now manipulated them in the wrong way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw, I won't say what movie it was, but it was a sequel to a musical. And it... Uh, Narrows it down. What? That narrows it down. (laughs) (laughs) It was a certain sequel to a musical. And I remember we were only like, we were less than 20 minutes in and there was this huge musical number. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, how are they going to top that? And they never did. (laughs) You know, it was just kind of interesting. And this isn't the only reason, but there was another musical later on that I thought, this is so spectacular, so awesome. Why am I feeling nothing? And a lot of it did have to do with the story structure and the understanding that the filmmakers weren't connecting to the to the audience or to the characters yeah i mean there's you can hide a lot of problems in a musical you know because the music well because the music can be so much more emotionally effective than dialogue or action and and so because of that the use of that you can see where like if you take my my always trick when i'm watching a musical is like take all the music out imagine taking it out and seeing if it's still story still works and quite a few of them break down quite a few of them stop a lot of them working yeah Yeah, i have a project that uh nearly got funded a year ago and we're still working on it but uh yeah, it's a musical. And I, at this point, I grew up doing musical theater. But for me, if you, if. It, hey! Yeah, <laughs> what? Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey! If it doesn't meant to be a musical, then yeah. Yeah. Make it a musical. And so 
Yeah. Uh, this one was where I, I liked um, one thing. Some people complained there wasn't enough music in Coco, but I think mm. that actually made it more effective because the music came where it needed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And Coco's one of those movies where you can take the music out. Like the music's beautiful. Oh, yeah. But you can take the music out and the story still works. Absolutely. You know? I always put like I always point back to Mulan. Mulan is a super compelling story. Mm-hmm. The musical numbers are fantastic, but like you don't need the music. Yeah. You don't. It plays solid either way. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So. I hadn't actually thought about that about that one. I do when I'm analyzing a musical, I do cut out the music and then look at just the story structure. I definitely yeah. do that. Yeah, I love I love how you said you can hide a lot of problems in a musical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so true. You can hide a lot of problems in spectacle as well. You can hide a lot of problems in humor. There's a, there's plenty of movies where, or, or franchises where it's big, high concept, super fantastical worlds. And it's very rare that I actually sit down to watch those because I know that oh, they're going to be hiding a lot of the problems behind giant CG spectacle scenes. And I'm like, it's just not for me, you know? Yeah, I'm there with you. <laughs> And when I do so, watch them, it's it's actually fun to break them apart and, and explain to the person like this is where it all fell apart. And I get in trouble for doing that. Better. I know yeah. I do too. <laughs> I, I had a reputation one place. It's like don't talk to Scott about that. Maybe he'll ruin it for you. <laughs> yeah, I get in trouble watching movies with my wife because she sees I'm quiet and she just assumes that I hate the movie. And she's oh. like, "What's wrong with it?" I'm like, "There's nothing wrong with it." Nothing. I mean, to be fair, and then fair, there isn't anything wrong with it because those films and those shows still have an effect on their audience. They they exist because they have a fan base. They exist because people tune in to watch them. And so therefore, even though they're not my choice, they are successful because people continue to click on them and watch them. So there's no perfect film out there either, right? No, so, no, there's no perfect film. There's films that work better. There's films that were that objectively work better than others, but it really is just like a two each his own because the audience, it's the audience's thing. And if the audience loves it, then it is theirs. You know, part of the danger of like, like when you think about Star Wars, when they started rewriting the lore and the fans freaked out, other than the fact that Star Wars fans tend to be more rapid than other fan bases, but you know, they've had ownership of it. Once you put it out there, it belongs to the audience and they have their opinions and you start messing with their dogma, they get a little upset, you know? Yeah. I have the same thing in college with like Shakespeare nerds when people start messing with Shakespeare. I'm just like, it's Shakespeare is a musical without the music. So it's like, you can play with it a little bit. Oh, that's interesting. Musical without a, the music. I never heard. That. I've done a lot of Shakespeare, but yeah, when you pentameter and you have yeah, there are the beats, there are the sections of the story that are all written in prose, and then when you get to a moment of like profound emotion or or event, there, he switches into the meter, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, and you'll usually see it like Act Three, Scene One is when a big soliloquy will happen, and it will be in the meter, and that's because they've gotten to a place where they kind of have to start singing a little bit. They're just not singing yet. But it has that instinct in it. It has that, that cut. the rhythm of the meter helps convey the emotion, helps convey the sensibilities to the audience. Yeah, you know? I was in a show uh, called As You Like It in college, and mm-hmm. they have songs written in there, but usually they'll just have somebody, somebody come in and recite it, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the character I played was the guy who recited it, but they actually wrote it as music and had a Celtic band awesome. come in. And I got these little clacking spoon things and oh it was fun. nice it was so fun. nice <laughs> and actually nice. really impactful because one of the songs happened when one of the characters dies mm. and so we were able to invoke tears in a way that i don't think you would have invoked without music yeah yeah i can imagine there was probably sheet music that was written by some minstrel in the in the players or in the troupe that just didn't get saved i mean we barely have shakespeare's plays you know that was like a here killing effort by his contemporaries several years after his death to just try and collect enough 
of what they remember and what they still had to create the folio, you know? Yeah. It's like we, it's a, it's a twist of fate that we actually still have, that we even know who Shakespeare is, that we have any of his plays, you know? Yeah, that is. So, okay, I just, I had a thought about musicals, like you can hide musicals. Do you think you could hide a bad film and a soundtrack too? Because a soundtrack is kind of like another... A, a score for a film is kind of like a new screenplay kind of on top of yours. Yeah. There's plenty of movies where like you have like needle drop kind of, you know, jukebox soundtracks and like, you know, because those, those songs will have an, an emotional, you know, value to them, to the audience already, especially if you do something that has nostalgia value to it. Like people are going to connect to it and bring their own emotions to those scenes that might not already be present. And that's, that's why it, it can sometimes be a little bit dangerous to do that because what the director feels station. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing is like, you know, there's a lot of times when one of my first notes I always gave when we do stories, when we give like story notes in studios is when they start to kind of rely too much on archetype and say, Oh, because their father, daughter or, or mother, son, obviously they would do a certain thing. It's like, not everybody has the same relationship with their parents. Some people don't have that parents in their life, you know? And so yeah. like you're to just rely on the fact that they are family you're going to lose the reason why. And it's going to be an intellectual connection that the audience has to it. Like, they're just going to assume archetypal, archetypally. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> Archetyp. Archetypically? Yeah. Archetypically. I don't know. Grab, somebody in the, somebody in, the, in the notes will tell us and we'll, I'll learn something new today. But, but the, the emotional connection won't be there. So it's like always like, even though, yes, they are mother, daughter, father, son, whatever relationship you have, you still have to make me, be a part of that relationship and feel that relationship and yeah, understand to, that relationship. That these are the dynamics of the relationship yeah. first before you show this is this dynamic so that yeah. the can feel it because they've already you, become that character along. Yeah. You has still have to do that work. Even if those two people are complete strangers, you still have to do that work with the audience so that they get there. So they understand. Yeah. You know, so that you get to create the intimacy. One of my favorite scenes that nobody ever sees. Brian McDonald pointed it out I'll, to give him mm-hmm. a minute, but. Um, is in Close Encounters, you have a scene where he's driving along and there's a car that comes behind him and he waves the car past, right? Mm-hmm. And then another car comes behind him, but then it moves up. And because they had shown the car before it, it has more mm-hmm. emotional impact. And yeah. don't think to do that. They're like, oh, skip to the good part. Skip to the, skip, skip to the meat. But it's like, no, no, no. Yeah. People won't un- like the meat if they don't understand, you know, <laughs> the content. Yeah. The one I always point to, like, it's very, you're, you're absolutely right on that. You like, you really have to give the audience the time to understand. The one of the scenes I always point to, oh, there's a couple of scenes I always point to, because we do have to be like, oh, let's keep the plot moving forward. Let's keep the plot moving forward. Keep the plot moving forward. If they made like Raiders of the Lost Ark today, you know, say somebody else of it, say somebody else had Final Cut other than Spielberg, right? That my favorite scene would not be in the movie. My favorite scene is the scene with, with Marion and Indy on the boat. And she's like, you're not the man I knew 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And he says, it's not the age, it's the mileage. It's just the two of them. Has nothing to do with the larger plot. Has nothing to do with the Nazis or the art. It's just the two of them. And it's just like that little scene of those two together and their relationship. And it's just about just their relationship to each other and our feelings about them as the audience with them and how much we care about them. Nothing to do with the plot. Yeah, It's gone because it doesn't advance the, it doesn't advance the plot. It's just this little island of character that's just so beautiful yeah. you know plus it's also like 
if I was going to point to a line of dialogue that that encapsulate encapsulates everything that Indiana Jones is, it's that line. It's like it's not the age, it's the mileage. Yeah, you know that thing. Like that was Harrison Ford saying, "This is me telling you who I am." But the other scene I would point to yeah. is in Father of the Bride, like the first Steve Martin Father of the Bride, not the 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 original. But you, there's a scene after in the first act after you meet the fiance or after after the you know his daughter says i'm getting married he's like you can't you're too young and there's a giant blow up at the dinner table there's a little scene between george and his daughter that you could lift out of the movie and the story would still make sense because the very next scene you meet the fiance and blah 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 the scene is just george playing basketball with his daughter it's just the two of them playing basketball in the little court that's in front of the garage and it's, it's, you get the sense that this is a ritual that they've had for 20 years. Like they've been doing this the entire course of their relationship. And because of that, you see how much he loves her, how much he means to her, how much she means to him. You see, like you understand just how much George, just why George is having such a problem letting his daughter go, yeah. you know? And, and it saves his character because then he could be an asshole for the rest, excuse me, language. He could be a jerk for the rest of the movie and you forgive him for it because like, no, I get it because like that is so precious. And that scene isn't about as much George and his daughter in their relationship. It's the scene where the audience falls in love with the relationship. It's yeah. the scene where the audience gets emotionally invested in this pairing. And it's so in that point we empathize with George. Yeah. You know, interesting. you said you, you could cut that scene out and it would make sense, but yeah, I, I, it wouldn't, I don't know that it would, have the emotional impact. And, no, and that's the exact, that's the thing. Logic. <laughs> we're not building things with logic here when we're building movies. Uh, we're building stories with emotion. It's fairly important, but theme beats logic, you know? Yes. And, um, I think one reason that executives tend to want to cut these kinds of things is they've seen the movie and they see yeah. the emotional impact it has. And they're like, get to the good stuff. And they think, oh, we could just trim this thing. But it's like, no, no, mm. no. You've seen the movie. So you know yeah. the movie with that scene in it. You cut that scene, you're going to lose so much. If you're a good writer, yeah. you know, some, some scenes can deserve to be cut, but <laughs> because, well, cause there's this, there's this dogmatic belief that you have to keep the plot moving forward. And it's like, well, the plot just tells you what happens, but it doesn't tell you why it matters. And that's the storytelling part of it. Right. And you need these little moments to kind of help us get that, get there, you know? And yeah, sometimes it slows the movie down a little bit, but it, it pays off huge in the course of the story, in the course of viewing the movie. I love it. I love it. There's another scene, too, that I think of in, in Prince of Egypt, where, you know, you've had all the plagues come mm -hmm. and the filmmakers were wise enough to take this really small, a slow moment of Moses walking down the stairs and then he collapses crying. I just think that, that the film without that would be half as good, yeah. to me, you know, with that, that one little scene. And it's so scary. And the first half of that scene is in the first act when it's Moses and Ramses acting like brothers. Right. And just yeah. how far Ramses will go to protect Moses and love Moses and be like, just how much that relationship between those two men matter and how much love they share with each other. Just the Ramses fall and Moses's guilt has so much more resonance because you set that up at the beginning that they have this love and this bond and this connection that matters to them as human beings, you know, even though they end on opposite sides of these, of this war, it's so much more painful. And, but that's beautiful, you know, it is. pain is big because the catharsis is wonderful. You know, that emotional journey is wonderful for us yeah. to have. It's interesting you know? too. I was thinking about this on my run the other day. I, in college, I was taking a creative writing class, I think. 
and mm-hmm. they they talked about suffering that all these artists went through and these poets and writers mm-hmm. and all sorts. And I I don't know why, but I was like, oh, I I think I can do it without the suffering. <laughs> <laughs> why should, why should you have to suffer for your art? That just sounded so weird to me. But the more the older I get, the more I'm like, oh no, I think that a good story takes pain to write. And good insight, deep meaning takes pain, painful experience, you know? You have to live your life. You have to experience life in order to understand, like, the breadth of this emotional tapestry that we have access to. Well, that was a fun tangent. We actually, <laughs> I promised that we would kind of go over this chart and... Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is how our brains work, because we're story nerds. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's so much to talk to about each little subject. You could just go on for hours, right? Yeah, so uh, here I have X1 and okay. what it does. What you'd written was it sets the scene and gets the ball rolling. It gives the setting. It gives the sense of tone and expectation. It introduces the primary characters. It <clears throat> introduces the primary conflict. It introduces stakes. And then something happens, which is the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Um, act two. Is there anything you want to say about that act? That I mean, that's exactly what I wrote. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you wrote. It's, and it's, I mean, mostly what I say, what I always say in that point is that it doesn't take as much work as you think. Because I've seen so many movies where the first act goes on for a thousand years because there's setting up the world and setting up the characters and setting up the rules and setting up the magic. It's, it's yeah. like single character has to have an introduction. It's like there's a lot that the audience will get through context. You know, yeah. there's a lot that they'll get. There's a lot that you, they'll get on the journey, you know, and it's like, they're pretty savvy. And if you tell them too much, then they're going to fall asleep. Cause yeah. they're just, you want to, you want to leave them something to dig for and something to work for a little bit. You yeah, know? exactly. I think what we're doing here is we're giving them umbrellas, right? Yeah. We're saying, okay, here's the umbrella. Everything fits under that. So you can't, you can't go outside that bre- umbrella, but you don't have to explain the umbrella entirely in the first act. That's laying too much pipeline is what they call it in save the cat. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So I love how you split act two in, in two parts. A lot of people don't do it. And that, that middle point is really a fulcrum. So the first part of act two, there will be growth and discoveries. Um, in Save the Cat, you have the fun and games part, right? You enter a new world. You, let's see, prepare the protagonist to achieve their goals. So it's a kind of a preparation period. Their tests, growth, learning, and struggle. Their intro guides and love interests. Intro to guides, guides like any people yeah yeah who guide them and mm-hmm. then you introduce a b plot if there is one or a supporting plot did you write s plot yeah supporting oh. plot yeah i like supporting plot a lot better than b plot definitely <laughs> and then it's generally lighter than the second half obviously because you're continually getting more and more heavy as you go toward the climax right generally so yeah but there are there's also an, an inverted arc which tragedies follow a lot where the first half is going to be heavier and darker than the second half Oh. And it just depends on what the character's going through and what their story is, you know? Yeah. You know, the reason why there's so much prep work in the first half of the second act is because this is this is a brand new experience for this person. They don't know anything. Or maybe they do. Maybe they know some stuff. But they still have to learn something. They still have to grow. They still have to gain. They still have to find. They still have to work. And in a and tragedy, they're going to not grow. And so no. you make it... They're going to push against. It gets lighter towards... And that's what creates the tragedy at the end is because where the moment when they're supposed to learn, they're, they've had such a light beat. Like this is, becomes one of their easiest moments that they're like, oh, well, I guess they don't have to change because oh. things are getting better. I love but that's what I mean, like we don't have the inverted things. To analyze these days, so... <laughs> but, but, but some stories will still use that tragic mellow, like um, Cars and uh, Goodwill Hunting will use the inverted model because 
they're so resistant to change in the first half that they're not really learning and growing. They're not really changing. They're kind of like, I'm finding a status quo, kind of a balance with what I want to be, stay as what I want, but kind of being able to function in this environment, but they're not changing until they hit the midpoint. Then like, okay, now I've given a reason to change and they will start to grow up. Oh, interesting. You know, and so, so that is the invert. The learning happens in the second half. The changing happens. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, yeah. And so it's just a question of like where, because the characters that are willing to go, the characters that are willing to to change and are kind of proactive to use, I mean, it's an aggressive word because some of them aren't as proactive, but the ones that are open to the experience will do that learning and growing on the first half. Because, because what will happen is like, that's the thing I need to do, or that's my goal. I need to get there. There's a little bit of self-awareness that like, I don't have the ability to get there. So I'll have to do some work to do that. Right. So you'll see like, you know, I point to um, like the karate kid. He's got to win. The, he's got to win the all Valley tournament against Cobra Kai. Yeah. I don't know any karate. I better start learning. You know, Will Turner in Pirates of the Caribbean does not have one clue whatsoever about how to save Elizabeth. So now he's like learning all of these pirate skills from Jack Sparrow unintentionally because he needs Jack's help, but like he's doing all of these new things that he would not have done if not for this situation because he needs to do that in order to save Elizabeth. That's when they start, but you know, conversely, Lightning McQueen thinks he's fine. He's awesome. He's a great, he's a superstar. He's the best in the world. Why should I change until like little thing after little thing after little thing after little thing keeps bringing him down, bringing him down, bringing him down, bringing him down into a point where like something makes him change. Something like, hey, maybe I'm not on the right path. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So act the second part of Act 2 follows a false victory or a defeat. So mm-hmm. it can either be an up moment or a down moment. And uh, often in Save the Cat, he says that right before the climax, you'd have the opposite of that, right? Mm-hmm. This this seems like the toughest act to, to write. The, the toughest part to write. Second part of Act 2 and mm-hmm. it's interesting now I tend to, I don't know if it's to my judgment, but I tend to really plan that area. Like yeah. <laughs> really focus in and make sure that I've got that solid and then I plan everything around it. What do you think of that? Does that sound good? Does that sound bad? To you? I mean, it, it is, it's, it's tricky only because like you want to get to that moment at the end of the second act where the, the character has a moment of reflection, right? That's the, the dark night of the soul scene. That's the atonement scene, atonement of the father, where the character has to kind of take a look at who they are, where they're, where they're going, where they've been, right? That's like, it's kind of, it, it's the reason why, like in my, in my lecture, I kind of, it points back, the reason why they go on this journey in the first place is tied to this moment, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and it's tied to the midpoint because the midpoint gives them that little sense of victory. They do something that makes them feel either successful, usually successful in most stories. If it's, if it's a, if it's a, if a, 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 def- a defeat, then it's like, well, it's somewhat validating their bad think in this moment, uh-huh. but you have to get them to a place where they stop and go, okay, I've learned this much. I've gone this far. I've suffered these burdens. I've made these mistakes. What do I, do I continue going forward? Do I, which path do I choose? Do I choose the path of growth that I've been on? Or do I choose to like revert back to where I was at the beginning? This is the tragedy arc and say, Oh wait, no, this was a mistake from the start. I was better back then, you know? And so it's like, it's kind of, and, and that in itself is setting up the third act because the third act is prove it, right? It's like, put your money where your mouth is. The third, the third act is like they've made a choice at the end of the second act to say which path I'm on. 
And it's like, okay, stick to it. Yeah. Do you really mean this? And then the, the movie's going to throw everything it possibly can at them to try and break them down and, and throw them off their path. And it's like them finding that they have either the ability or the will or the desire to hold true to it, even if it means it's their, their destruction, you know? Or if on the tragedy arc, they make the wrong choice and they're destroyed by it because like, oh, wait, you didn't learn fast enough. So uh, uh, it's poison, Romeo. It is tricky but if you know where your character starts you know what's in their heart and what they want in the first act you know and you know how they need to end up you can kind of start to track those beats emotionally within the character to get you there you know because i think a lot of times we're like when we're thinking about like how how to how to write these beats we're thinking about this cool scenes and how they're like or how do i make them cry versus like the reason why those scenes need to be there I point to in the Matrix, that moment isn't an emo like we, we assume those beats are supposed to be dark and dramatic, but like in the Matrix, it's not. It's an intellectual moment, it's a logical moment where like Neo's like, hold on a second, Morpheus said this thing, and then the, the Oracle said this other thing, and now it's all coming true. This can't possibly be true. You know, it's like he has to make a choice about like who what path do I follow? You know, and it's like it's really just him going, and the whole his whole arc is what can you believe? And so it's that moment is him going, like, okay. I've been a skeptic for this long. Now I need to have a, a moment of faith, you know? Yeah. In uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, that moment comes earlier in the second act because if we're following Will's story, his his moment of like it, reflection happens before the pirates even show up and they get marooned, right? Because he's that one moment where he realizes, like, whoa, I actually really am a pirate. I have pirate's blood in my veins. Mm -hmm. And it's during a sweet moment between him and Elizabeth. And so it's like, it's really just kind of figuring out what your character needs to get them there. Exactly. It all, it all focuses on that, that internal journey of the character. And the audience's journey with them. So act three seems like it's, it should be the easiest act to write, right? You just yeah. wrap up the conflict, resolve it. <laughs> you either you can kind of return back to your word at the beginning to show how the character's changed or... Or you can move on to some other new existence, depending on what the story is. But, you know, you can go too long. You can mm -hmm. be too short <laughs> as well. Um, are there any other pitfalls that we should avoid in Act 3? I mean, 3 is like... Because I've seen some re like really long third acts. Yeah. Like, Return of the King is like four hours long. I think a lot of times that one is just like... because Because you can do that kind of fun, like really showing off your world building that you did it, like if you saved it from the first act, you know, and just kind of let it kind of blow up there. Part of it is also like just how much is the audience willing to sit through? Like how, how far do you need to go before the audience is like, okay, I got it. I got it already. I got it. You can stop yeah. now. You know, sometimes you want us to take that extra time. Like Jaws, the third act, I think is like 15 minutes. It's like really, really short and it's enough. He's like the, the, the shark eats the boat. And you're like, well, I, I, I get it. I don't need the boat to come back up from the bottom and go through it twice. It's like, you just, you know, it can just be that short versus like a new hope. I think it's like 45 minutes. It feels really long. The third act in new hope. Maybe it just feels long. <laughs> I think I don't have to go look at the time code on that one, but yeah, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark. The third act is really short and it's really small. Like you think about like, well, end game, the third act is the last hour of the movie uh -huh. Avengers end game. That's the, as soon as like they come back with the stones and like they're doing their mourning, you know, spoilers, but the movie's like 10 years old, Widow's Loss. That's the start of the third act. And it's like more than an hour. It's like a, it's like a third of the running time of the movie. The first act of, of Endgame is really, really short. It's really because they don't have to do any work setting stuff up. So it's like it's all second and third act and it's really long, but it's they fun. Telling a lot of stories there. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if that last battle's. 
that last battle is super fun. It's like it pays off a, 10 years of movie making, you know? So it's like, yeah. I, don't, I don't mind too much. So, uh, a great YouTube series called Just Right that I love. Really fun kind of insightful looks at filmmaking and like every every look even my look and your look and the professionals quote-unquote look at filmmaking it's all subjective it's all our own personal interpretation uh-huh. but like he makes a compelling argument about how the first act of rocky is an hour the movie is barely two but the first it's all first act because he spends so much time setting up rocky if you're if you're tracking the plot point that the story is rocky becomes a boxer right because mm. the the offer to box apollo creed doesn't show up until an hour into the movie so the rest of all of that other stuff is just setting up who he is how he feels about things his hopes and dreams his meeting of adrian so if you're looking at through that lens of just his boxing career yeah it's an hour if you're looking at it through the lens of like rocky's personal journey then the first act is fairly short because as soon as he meets adrian yeah. It's a general, same general structure. And then you get to the, the midpoint becomes the offer for the boxing ring. And it's like that for the boxing Apollo. Like, and that still kind of makes sense for that. You know, you look at his arc switches from being a positive arc to kind of an inverted V, you know, but it's, it is all just how you personally feel about it. Wow. I, you can make the same argument about Jurassic life. Park. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful life that way too. Like, yeah, I know that is the movie that this guy getting to see life without him. But yeah. That doesn't happen until about two thirds of, of the way into the movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, the arc is about his personal journey and not just yeah. what the angel's doing. The angel has his own part in the story, but Terrence, I guess, is the name. Uh, yeah. So the interesting thing is, like, as I was thinking about this and story structure and comparing all these story structures, I have started to thinking about this less as structure and more as dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dynamics that fit, and it seems like that—that's what we've been talking about—is different dynamics mm-hmm. that hang in a structure, but they are switchable and they're moldable depending on what the character is going through. If you're doing it right, you don't—you don't have too much molding power, right? You're the slave of your story, not the master. You know, depending on what your character's, your specific character's journey is, you can use different dynamics to make the story work. Yeah, to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I, the the danger with that, only I would uh, is that yeah, push back. I love that because <laughs> I've only because like I've seen this kind of happen is we're like, you know, trying to fo- that's what you like. You talk about having a like a, a song where in the middle of the movie that was bigger than the rest of the movie, uh-huh. you know, and it was just like because they really like this idea and like well, I just can't get rid of it, and so it just kind of blows up the middle of the movie. What what can happen sometimes is that you get so in love with like a like a plot idea or a set piece that it stays where it is, even though you've done all this work in the first act or the third act that makes that plot piece point feel unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And so the characters are forced to go through a thing that doesn't feel natural. Yeah. Just because the plot needs them to. Yeah. Like so they'll they'll make a choice or they'll say a thing or they'll act in a certain way that seems incongruent with where they where their journey is or what they've been doing. Just because they want a certain thing to happen. Yeah. I see it a lot of times with like TV shows that don't end very well because they really wanted something to happen at the end of the show. And like you've gone on this journey with these characters and you've gotten to know them very well and you've gotten invested in who they are and what they're going through and what they want to be. And all of a sudden weird stuff just happens. And all of a sudden all of those things that you were meant to believe are thrown away because they really want this plot thing to happen. Yeah. You know, at the same time, I think it's like about a- another dynamic. You know, yeah, well, yeah. Other dynamic that if you're if you're trying to 
use one dynamic, but you start to feel it's unnatural for the character. There's another dynamic that lets you know that, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's like, I always feel like, like the, the characters will kind of tell you where they're going, you know? And if, and if you need them, you can prod them. That's what's great about supporting characters and supporting subplots or B plots is that you have these other people that kind of like tap them in a direction if you need them to. Because what happens is the character will either really care about that other person's opinion or feelings or have a need for them in their lives. And that person will push back and the character will have to evaluate, okay, am I doing something wrong? Am I going the wrong way? Have I screwed up in some way? And of course, correct them a little bit, you know, awesome. Cause they're, cause they're human beings and they care about their relationships, you know? So we're going to really take a hard left here. Uh, Okay. Because this is something I wanted to focus on and, if we keep going, we won't get to it, but it's okay. really cool. And it kind of, it has to do with you in particular because you aren't the person okay. writing these screenplays. You aren't the person mm. writing these stories. You're storyboarding, right? And yeah. Something I noticed is on this series that I was developing at Space Station Animation, this second one, I noticed, well, we were writing these scripts and they were very wordy because this is a YouTube celebrity. He loves, mm. he loves to speak, you know, he's just a a big talker and he's really good at it. Right. And we've had mm-hmm. all these other social media influencers we're bringing in. They, they were, we went, we came in a room and they rewrote every single line in the script. Right. Like, how would you say it? How would your character say it? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was an interesting meeting to be a part of because I was sitting there going, but, but the structure, but the characters, but the, you know, and so I had to kind of help steer them into the direction. Like, that's a good idea. If you said it just a little bit more this way. It would help your character <laughs> arc, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But then one thing that, What's interesting is we came out of that meeting, we recorded everything, and I looked at the screenplay and I was like, we still need work here. This still needs some structure. This still needs the dynamics that make a really good story. And I realized, oh, well, we could do that with the visuals, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to talk to you about that. Like, how how much of this structure are you able to bring into the process with your storyboarding? That's usually, like, one of the first things I try and do when I get in my time is trying to figure out, like, what is the focus of this scene? Because the scene has to advance their story in some way. You know, it, it either it has to take them closer to where they're going or away from where they're going in some constructive way. If, even if it's, like, destructive, even if they take them backwards, it's in some way it's, it sheds some either bad thought or bad practices that makes the character ready to move forward. Or it reinforces some bad thoughts or bad methods that makes them basically be destroyed by the end of the story. So there is a degree where you can have a, a fun jive section like that, mm-hmm. where like, it's kind of, they're improving off each other. And like, there's all those movies where like scenes go on for a long time and they're super fun because the characters are, the characters are super witty mm-hmm. or the relationship is really great. And that's one of those things where like, you know, sometimes you, you let it go long because you don't know in the board process how much you need. And you'll find out an editorial like, okay, now it's starting to feel long because in the context of everything else, it feels like it's way too much. And then sometimes like it will go long because like you've got this movie has been so fast and so heavy and there's so much information. There's so many events. It's really nice to just kind of pause for a minute and let these characters just kind of yak at each other. And it's like, I, I don't mind, you know, I'll just let them talk for a little bit, you know? So it's like on the, the, the macro sense, like what do you need for the overall story and the overall experience of the audience? Yeah. And then on the micro sense, okay, well, what is, what is the purpose of this scene? And yeah. sometimes, and sometimes you'll discover in the, during the creative process that the purpose of the scene shifts, yeah. you know, maybe it was important to advance some character or some relationship or some plot idea. And sometimes, oh, wait, no, it's just about us growing to love these people. And it's more about the audience than it is about the characters themselves. Yeah. You know, um, one of my mentors always said, 
be open to discovery. Have have a direction you're going, but allow space for the magic to kind of happen that you might not be aware is supposed to be there and let the process find it for you. Yeah, your approach kind of sounds familiar. I mean, you're both pros. So Glenn Harmon was on the show uh, uh, Glenn. a few years ago. <laughs> and he said he had this acronym TCBY, like for the yeah. ice cream, right? And T was tent poles, like your big things that have to happen in this sequence. Yeah. And then he had uh, the TCC was camera, like where you put your camera has a lot of meaning and how mm-hmm. it's staged, right? And then the blocking, what the characters are doing, and then YouTube for reference, which is like the, dis- <laughs> like the surprise. Yeah. How do I find something surprising in life yeah. that helps inspire this scene and make this scene yeah. interesting and dynamic? And Glenn's a genius, you know? I, I, I've, I've worked with him before. He's, yeah, he's fantastic. And like, I, and that's a good point when we talk about the camera work too, is that your camera can either be passive and just show you the event, or it could say, it can really influence the audience's opinion. Yeah. You know, and so it's like thinking about how you can use that artistically is is fantastic, you know, and even sometimes just letting the camera back off and get out of the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just be there. You know, just be there, you know, because because I whenever I tell my my students to say the audience, the camera is you. You're the audience member. Like you're the person. Imagine yourself physically in this space with these people. How close do you want to (laughs) get? You know, where do you want to be? What do you want to look at? What is the most interesting thing to you, you know? Yeah, I like that. And it's, you know, and, and like, that's kind of what I feel like, you know, when I, one of my earliest, well, early since because I'm old, like Spielberg, early Spielberg. I love, because his reach of camera is always like, you really get a sense of like, this is Spielberg, just like, all right, this is cool. And it's just, it's just him looking around and like looking at stuff and just, it's like, when you, when he introduces Marion in, in Raiders, it's a, it's just a wonder. He's, he's just like, comes into the, that, the, the whiskey, the whiskey glasses, and he's just looking back and forth at these two people. And like, I could just imagine he's just grinning the whole time because like, yeah. this is amazing, you know? Yeah. And the, the scene feels that way, you know? Because it's it's his personality coming through, watching this moment unfold. I love that. So my last question that I usually do in every show is the get wiser moment. And the question is, if my yeah. goal is to get the highest concentration of truth into a story, what approach would you <clears> recommend? It sounds like we've already started answering this. It sounds like you would recommend really focus on the character, what that character is going through and making sure you're truthful with that experience. Is there anything you'd like to add on top of that? Being sincere with it. I mean, there's a certain amount where like you, you yourself have to be vulnerable as the writer, as the, I mean, actors are always told, be vulnerable, be open, you know, show us what's underneath, be raw, but it's not really something that gets communicated to like the directors Mm -hmm. and the board artists as much because they're always like, Oh no, we can be, we can step back and be reserved. It's like, well, no, it's like, you have to be, you have to, you yourself still have to show you yourself have to be open up. You yourself have to try things. You yourself have to take some risks. You're going to put yourself out there. You're, you're, everything that you do is you're putting yourself out there for scrutiny. Right. And so sometimes people will start to make the safe choices because like, I don't want to be judged too much. I was like, well, no, that's when the, that's when the walls come up. That's when the artifice comes involved. Like break through that and try and find something sincere um, and meaningful that's inside of you that you can impart through these moments, because you're trying to take these people, you're trying to take your audience into your life. You're trying to impart your, your own personal experiences yeah. onto them because we all, all of our points of views are completely unique and different. And the only way we can understand somebody else's life is by walking it with them. And so it's like oh, yeah. letting, letting these people in, 
so that they can and find those little moments. Let them be uncomfortable, you know, for a little bit. Yeah. You know, that's what I kind of feel like when we talk about like truth and sincerity is that like trying to get underneath the artifice a little bit more yeah. and bringing out like what is what is actually going on. Yeah. Even even the broken, ugly stuff sometimes is still beautiful and oh, bringing that out, you know? Yeah. I've come, I've started saying a lot, uh, we're, we're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into these projects. We better make it worth it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Discovery, whatever you're discovering, whatever you're inventing there, it's gotta be worth it. Yeah. My friend, my friend always called like animated films, a uh, million dollars, a million dollar a minute movie because it costs about a million dollars per minute of footage. And I was like, yeah, you might as well do the best stuff that you can, yeah. which is quite often ends up being like in film, the safest stuff because it is so costly but if you can yeah, find generally the safest stuff yeah plot stuff and spectacle stuff is are really really easy character stuff takes a lot more work character stuff takes a lot more insight character stuff takes a lot more risk and vulnerability and pain but it's <laughs> and pain and joy you know and, joy, and yes. sadness because you when you feel that depth of pain there's your whole your heart is then bigger yeah pain the joy yeah. So yeah. Yeah. But the joy feels more if you go into the pain. Yes, exactly. You know, the re- you 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 can't have relief unless you suffer first. <laughs> so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's been awesome having you on the show. If anybody wants to follow you, where's the best place to follow you? Your work? I, I have my website, uh thehouseofelrod.com. Okay. Um and I'm yeah, I'm just on social media, you know, Instagram. You know, I, I LinkedIn, I generally reply back to messages. Like uh, always, I love talking about this stuff. It's one of my favorite things in the world. I drive my family crazy, but also it's just like it's just nice to kind of like I I started out just you know I was a PA and I was I just fell in love with storyboarding and like I was I was lucky enough to be surrounded by people who believed who didn't just look at me like oh no this is an impossible thing might as well give up like they gave me help and feedback they spent their time talking to me and kind of giving me advice. And I always try and kind of pay that forward just because there's so many incredible points of view and so many incredible artists who just kind of need that little bit of help just to kind of let their voice come out. And for me, I feel like it's just kind of a richer world when we have more people playing with us, you know, Yeah. in this, in the creative sense. Yeah, absolutely. I had the same philosophy. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Until next time, I hope we all get a little wiser. Thank you for watching the Directing Animation Livecast, hosted by Scott Weiser, audio version edited by Kira Horowitz, copyright Scott Weiser, LLC 2022. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and ring that notification bell.